I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. See, white water rafting is dead now. <laughs> That's below dead. Replaced. That's yeah, but like, no, but it's a sport. Um, no, but the, the, so they finally found a replacement project for uh, I think it's really Top. funny considering we only spoke about this last week. Yeah, but about how like it was dead. But now uh, it's now going to be. It like something off the it's now going to be an, an open water swimming pool, or at least that's the proposal, with a name that we're not sure how to pronounce because we don't know whether it's Lido or Lido. Apparently it's Lido. I don't know why they're still okay. calling the pool, though. Well, so Richard and I in the office today did both concede and admit to one another that we didn't know what a Lido was. You thought it was a Lilo? Yeah, I thought it was a flotation yeah, we device. We both, we both thought it was. Something very low violent yeah. floating around the pool. <laughs> there's, a, there's a touch of that. You will have people now I asking to pull each other Lido. for a chat outside the whitewater swimming pool in George's Key. Why are we obsessed with outdoor water sports well, in, in this country? Weather. Like, it's well just... up for this weather. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and you're very welcome to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined as ever uh, by what were titled last week as the Mayhem Correspondents. No, maybe not I was quite, the Chaos Correspondents. Maybe not you quite mayhem as much mayhem editor. this week, but by news correspondents Zara King. Zara, hello. Hello. And Richard Chambers, hello. Hey. Uh, quiet news week by comparison. Not not quite objectively, because uh, it's, it's been still a, a fair amount going on. Around. But yeah. just by comparison to last week, like we're not here watching Sky News live, watching a, a rolling tot of ministerial resignations. When I listened back to the episode last week, I was like, we are such nerds. Like, we were practically giddy. Like, like it was I, quite I did revealing. cringe a little bit yeah. at just how, like, dramatic my gasp was when Boris Johnson sacked, sacked Michael Gove. Michael Gove yeah. Yeah, people at home listening going, why does that matter? Why does yeah. it care? East, East Enders drum snare. <laughs> yeah. finale is what it was, really. Uh, it's been a busy enough news week anyway, largely because it's been that, that usual end of uh, dull term, let's shove everything through. Oh, and by the way, will the the government collapse. Uh, a motion of no confidence uh, in the dole um, in the government tabled on Tuesday night. The government emerging fairly comfortably winners in the end. 85 votes to 66. Richard, surprised? Nah. Lacklustre enough as a debate as well. Mm. The whole thing was a bit lacklustre. Like, it's one of those things where, like, the vast majority of people don't see what happens in the dole anyway. Yeah. Mm. On a day like this when there is an interest in, okay, well, there might be some threats to the government here, so you might potentially get more people viewing it than otherwise would it you do have to put your best foot forward as a performer so what actually happens internally in political parties is they notice who gives a good speech Mm. and I think that's what I was most interested in because obviously from earlier on in the day and the days leading up to it when you had all these conversations about what independents are voting yeah to keep the government going. And, and, and they were the ones who were actually salient. They were the ones who would decide whether the government was going to live or die in this. Exactly. Yeah. So they weren't really under a huge threat. Although everybody's trying to do the mental arithmetic around this. But I was most interested in who was speaking, who gave a good speech and what it means for them going forward. I don't know if anybody stood out as a, as a good contribution. And there was a few odd zingers in it. Like, I mean, there was Heather Humphreys, Heather Humphreys going Humphreys on about cotology of yeah. Sinn Féin. Yeah, the flip-flop party. The flip-flop party. Yeah, Heather Humphreys one it. is the one I would say that did the most reach in terms of what you saw on social media being shared by regular people as well. I think it's... I actually, like, this is completely beside Outside what we're going to be... the bubble, as we call it. Yeah, yeah. but this is the point. Is I actually think way beyond what we're actually talking about here is if you're looking at... If she was ever interested in actually running for leader of Fine Gael, I genuinely don't think she's actually 
She's one of their better performers in the doll. She has this in her. It happens in election campaigns as well. So that's beside the point, but it's just an interesting one. Always look out for who gets to speak at these yeah. and whose speeches do well. I've always thought that Pascal Donoghue is surprisingly good in that sort of environment because he never has notes either. That's not the first time that he has spoken in a confidence motion where things have maybe looked like they might be a bit stiff. And people have this idea of Pascal Donoghue as being very prudent, very reserved, a man who will pour more over the spreadsheets than anything else. And he'll stand up and like he will rouse the troops behind him in ways that actually a lot of people wouldn't expect. I was just saying to you, you and I were talking on Thursday last week when the first kind of idea of this confidence motion had been mooted. I, mean, I was with Mary Lee MacDonald at a marking and sort of mm. asking her, was it going to happen? And she was saying, oh, we haven't made a decision yet. And I was like, but everyone's saying you're going to do it. And mm. what happened there? Why uh, was there so I, much well, confusion? I was reporting that it was happening because yeah. the Dolls Business Committee, which sets the agenda for the week, had been told it was happening. And I, I put that yes. to Mary Lee so MacDonald. I, so I've been told, because Sinn Féin were then saying, oh, we're thinking about it, we're considering it now that it's an official minority government, as we discussed on last week's podcast, maybe it's best to put that to the test and see exactly what their command is and true enough then they told the business community the following day just so everyone knows we're putting in a motion of no confidence which then because I got it confirmed from multiple people at the meeting I reported as being a statement of fact and then uh, Mary Lee McDonald kind of her face dropped when, when you put well, yeah, that idea to her she was really shocked yeah I was like was this notified to the doll business committee and she sort of went uh, <laughs> she was uh, like yeah, looking to her advisor sort of going ah, no <laughs> you saw the it footage. Was. Yeah, Sorry yeah. About that. Um, but Gavin, in terms of people saying that this was a waste of time, was it a waste of time? And if so, whose time was actually wasted? It depends on what you think the goal actually was. I mean, if, if the goal was to kick out the government and cause a general election, which Sinn Féin have said on the face of it was the goal, mm. then failure and pretty poor failure because it actually showed that the government is fairly united, has a few independents behind it, and that the opposition is not so united because the independents are still likely to flake towards the government from time to time. Um, but was that the actual purpose of the whole thing? I'm not totally sure that it was because so much of what Sinn Féin were saying between the motion being called or tabled and the vote actually taking place was this is an opportunity for the independents to show, to nail their colours to the mast and to show which side they're truly on. And it was actually the independents more so than the government who were in the firing line. It was pointing to independence in constituencies where Sinn Féin might have a hope of taking another seat next time. People like Peter Fitzpatrick in Louth, an independent TD in an area that Sinn Féin might make gains next time. They can now go to the electorate and say, well, is there much point of electing an independent like mm. Peter Fitzpatrick if he was prepared to vote in favour of the old government to keep things the way that they were? So maybe actually they're playing a really long game. They're, you know, even Leo Varadkar called them master tacticians in the doll on Tuesday night during the, uh, the whole debate. Maybe that is what they were doing. They were trying to isolate people to make them vulnerable next time because they knew that actually tabling emotional no confidence wasn't going to mm. collapse the government anyway. That is definitely a byproduct of why you do things like this. Mm. I do think it's interesting, and some people I ask around politics about like what, what was the what was the what was the game plan here? Would it have been better to hang on till after the summer and come back when it comes around to crunch time for some of the cost of living stuff? When maybe when less people are kind of away and maybe a bit more tuned into politics at that time as well. Well, I think no, just even from the impact of of, of when things are actually going to mm. to bite when it comes down to cost of living stuff and the budget and stuff like that. In those weeks, leading things are going to be contentious. Yeah. And also, and we'll probably come to this in a minute as well. But like things between the government parties may not be so rosy a little bit further down the line mm -hmm. where you can exploit some of that you know, that fractions or yeah. the fractitious nature of things. Well, you could so, argue that it was a little bit of a free hit because the doll is rising. Today, the, the episode, the day this comes out is July the 14th. Doll is rising and it's not back until September the 14th. Happy holidays. And then two weeks after that is the budget. Mm. So if you were to decide to wait until the other side of the term, there would be no need to table a motion of no confidence or confidence because you would basically have 
a de facto one two weeks in when they have to vote on adopting whatever's in the budget in anyway. The budget, so that's, that's yeah. kind of a de facto motion of confidence. And then there's another one in December when you're supposed to rotate the job of Taoiseach and they'll have to vote afresh on whether to give Leo Varadkar the job. So that's already a bit of a sign of whether you have confidence. So from that sense, it was a, a bit of a free hit. But as you say, like relationships between the coalition, not necessarily brilliant, but maybe more might talk about some of the climate stuff in a couple of minutes. That would certainly be enough to, to sow some seeds among them. Just in relation to the Dáil rising, just an interesting, for people who don't maybe understand, what does that actually mean in terms of wh where do the politicians go and what do they do? We always kind of talk about the minister for August they, as journalists, yeah. don't we? There's always one minister who gets left behind yeah. to do all the interviews in August. But just That's for our listeners, what, Gab, what does that mean they exactly? Go, where uh, they sit home in front of the Virgin Media player and they catch up on six weeks worth of Love Island uh, <laughs> that they've missed. Um, what it means is that the, the Dáil doesn't meet. Yeah. So there isn't question time where you can ask a minister what's going on in, in an oral thing. Nobody is bringing in a new law, a new debate, whether it's going to pass or not, or you debate whether it should be amended. None of that happens. Now, TDs will still tell you that they work. They're in their constituencies. They might take a week or two away, but that they're still around at home. They're just not required to schlep over to Kildare Street or make the big drive to up Dublin. or down to Dublin. Yeah. Um, there, it's kind of a good time to catch your TD then if you have a particular issue. Yeah, well, if they're mind. still doing their, their constituency committees, they, they have a little like bit a more time weeks, on their hands because they can't do that whole thing of, oh, sorry, I'm taking a phone call now because I have to be on my way up to Dublin because <laughs> th th there's nothing to be up in Dublin for. There's the I know who they are there. who do that. Yeah, that's it. You know yes. who you are. We know and who you we are. know who you are as well. <laughs> We're watching you. Um, fake phone calls. We know they're fake phone calls. Absolute. Sorry, that, just, oh, we're going to hold on. The subject of that, the fake phone calls from politicians when you approach them in the street. So there gross. are some cabinet ministers who are particularly <laughs> good at taking the fake phone call just when they're passing the reporters on the way into cabinet. Astonishing um, the amount I, of I um, have known ministers who take instance, fake phone calls. I've known one instance where someone did ring a minister uh, when they were doing that and caused the minister's phone to ring aloud while they were on no a phone way. call so that they couldn't speak to the journalists. I've thought about it many times. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you who it was uh, after we've uh, gotten away. I can probably guess. Yeah. People can guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we Maybe some of those phone calls are real. Though. Let's you know. Let's we're Obviously, open to the yeah. we're open yeah. to the possibility. To, to be fair, they're, yeah. they're they're busy people. They have a lot yeah. to be ta talking about. Um, the prospect of there being tension among the government oh. parties. We have a little bit of that this mm. week because there already there was supposed to be a move brought to cabinet on Tuesday about uh, banning the industrial sale of turf didn't happen on Tuesday, but may still happen at the end of the week. That is an obvious source of contention uh, within and among the coalition parties. And then, of course, when they get back from the recess, Richard, it's, it's budget time. And then, really, it's, it's about who can haggle best. It's a tough decision. This is, mm. you know, there's been so many budgets which have come at difficult times in recent years, whether that be during COVID or you go back even to the times of, you know, the economic crisis and even the recovery and you have to make tough decisions on what goes where and what can we do. And they do make or break governments. Mm. So the budget is going to be particularly hard because not everyone will be able to get something out of what the government has earmarked in that summer economic statement in terms of what they're going to spend the budget on and who's going to get tax cuts and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to be difficult. Um, but as well as that, it's also the, the carbon budget effectively as well. Mm. The sectoral um, emissions target. So this is basically setting out how much each sector of the economy and society needs to cut its emissions by, that has the potential to be the most contentious thing between the three mm. coalition parties. It's the reason the Greens are in government. The yeah. Greens are in government to get Ireland's climate house in order. Yeah. They're going to have a hell of a fight if they want to, because Eamon Ryan and the Greens want agriculture to do its maximum amount, which is to reduce by 30%. Mm. Mm. 
Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil don't want that to happen. No. Because, look, they're looking out for it's farmers. Hard. Yeah. It's hard to do it. Mm. And they will dig their he heels in. Mm. They have already said, we're not doing this, we're not going back in this. So there's a potential to fight on this. And if the Greens fold on that, what, what, like, I mean, what, what's, well, what's the, the point? point of having Greens? So there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of like ooing and aahing and looking forward to that. So if you're looking for the next big thing, crunch point for government yeah. and politics. That could be it. And that was already a big thing, actually, even in the adult, only this week, uh, as we're recording this, the final week before recess, there have already been TDs from the rural areas, the rural independent groups, standing up and saying, the IFA say we cannot do any more than the 22%, which yeah. is the minimum amount mm. we're expected to do, any more than like that. That is only just about tenable for the agriculture and food production sectors. Go any further than that, and they're basically not viable. The problem being, if you expect them to at least pull their, their equal share, they're already being asked to do less than everyone else because it's a carbon intensive area, but we all need food to live mm. off. Um, so, but asking them to do um, anything less than, than mid-20s or up to 30%, and then it becomes so much harder for every other sector. And should they all be made to push really hard just because agriculture is, pardon the pun, uh, a sacred cow. Um, and sorry, uh, I, mean, yeah, I, I feel like as <laughs> well, every time we have this conversation, I, oh, I'm always so mindful of farm families that you meet, though, who will say, you know, that farmers themselves at the heart of what they do are environmentalists. And I think sometimes yeah. it's really difficult because mm. we speak to farmers a lot in our, in our line of work. And I think they often feel sort of like they're misrepresented in this conversation, like as if they're in some way against, you know, protecting the planet or, or following the, the climate agenda. Mm. They're certainly not. It's just that I suppose like a lot of people, they would argue that they're also dealing with the basic cost of living yeah. uh, increases across the board. And, you know, that comes down to their farms or their businesses. And, and you mentioned their viability. The viability of those businesses really is on the cliff edge at the moment, no different to any other business. And I think a lot of them would just feel, and I know from speaking to them, that, you know, at the core they are environmentalists and would sort of really argue that point when they feel like they're always sort of being pinned up there as being sort of against the climate agenda. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a reasonable point and it's definitely one that's worth uh, reflecting. Speaking of the Greens and climate, um, Catherine Martin's got herself into a little bit of trouble this week by... Uh, it emerging that she's been taking quite a few business class flights. Obviously, she can't cycle to the Middle East to do all these tourism stuff and whatever she's doing. Um, but business class travel is not considered to be the most environmentally kosher because of how few seats you can fit in business class relative to economy. And there's an argument that if she was consistent in her climate stance, she wouldn't be doing it. Does that make sense though, does it? Does that make actual sense? If you're going on a plane, a plane which has seats, some of them are in... <laughs> first class or business class yeah. over the road. And as like, in like the plane is moving the plane, is, going the plane anyway. is moving yeah. and burning the fuel anyway. Is this what we're sort of getting yeah, at? Like, I get there, it. There, I there get is it. that argument but the argument is, is also that because Like as in are, the business class seats will be there whether they're empty or filled. Is that yeah, what the but, argument but is? That you, if you are distributing the carbon load between fewer passengers because okay. there are few people in them then each passenger contributes yeah, relatively okay, more okay, yeah. is the argument. But it has kicked off another question, this classic question about should ministers be flying in business class? Should they always be flying economy? Should they be doing whatever is best value for the taxpayer? Or is there a scope where they should be treated like ministers and that ministers should be entitled to take business class on on-call flights? Should they be getting a government jet everywhere? Uh, a, a classic old tale as old as time. Um, it may be controversial to admit this, but I've been told oh. before... Uh, here we, we go. Now, gonna, I'm sorry, you, well, we get myself cancelled now. Like, we Mark had this conversation now. earlier on. July 2022, <laughs> I'm going to get cancelled. Um, I have spoken to ministerial advisors in previous governments. Um, obviously, after 2010, 2011, it became just completely non-runner that you wouldn't take the government jet anywhere unless you couldn't fly commercial. And ministers were always expected to fly economy class. And I've uh, travelled or I've spoken with special advisors before who have travelled with ministers and indeed to some politicians who have some experience of it as well who say that with all the best will in the world, 
even if you uh, travel in economy and you have an advisor beside you and you intend to maybe just have a look, bit of a look over your notes or you're going to Brussels and you need to revise whatever you're doing for that meeting. So it's a working flight, you're yeah, working on board that the flight. They don't feel like they can really work on that flight because there will be some civilian in a seat beside or in front of or behind them who knows who they are, who recognises them from seeing them on the news at 5.30 or the news at 7 or uh, on social clips or whatever and know who they are and then want to have a bit of a gawk at the paperwork in front of them to the effect that the minister and their advisor don't feel like they can actually open their own paperwork and therefore can't do the work on a plane that they anticipated being able to do. Now, that's a separate debate too, whether they should be allowed to, to travel in comfort if they're going to be working right up to a long haul so flight. So you're saying it's right less after. about comfort and more about GDPR? Well, I think not even about GDPR, but just about the, the effectiveness of whether you can even, if a minister can't look at their own notes on a plane, then I don't know if we're sending them in the most I'm just reminded way. of the, the course that we do every year, you know, with the little cartoon guy. And it's like, oh, yeah. and it's like if you're on a train, like don't don't open your laptop on yeah. the train. All be this kind be of careful stuff. not to allow be anyone careful to look not over to your shoulder. What do they call it? Is it... I can't remember the Tailgating, I think they call it. Yes, it's tailgating. tailgating yeah. yes. Or always somebody comes into the building into when you've got the, the thing open and they can then get access to all the sensitive yeah. stuff. Yeah, but like, like, that's a very legitimate concern, yeah. absolutely. But is, but is there an argument then for ministers flying business class long distance or should they be expected to slum it? I think the distance like probably, economy? we were talking about this earlier, the distance is probably a factor, do you reckon? Richard is sitting there desperately trying to stay on the fence. Yeah, but like I was kind of the same. I tried to stay on the fence early, but I couldn't argue. I couldn't actually argue with you when you made that point about, I suppose, state secrets or whatever, or like, you know, just sensitive information. You can imagine a situation where somebody is sitting in uh, economy class as a minister or whatever and is going through notes and somebody beside takes the phone out, snaps a photo of it. Oh, look at this. Mm. Look at this Egypt here going through their notes on on a plane. Everybody just jumps on it. Like... If that uproar would be something which you can foresee happening, mm. well, then what's the best solution about, uh, 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 like, to prevent that from happening? Yeah. So that's kind of that's one way of looking at it. But have you, like, I mean, I do know some politicians and some ministers who do on the short haul stuff anyway, in particular, they do jump on a, a economy and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And that that is like that is that does happen. Yeah, I, I have been on short haul planes in the United States uh, following a previous Taoiseach, who there's no point in him, him remaining nameless because it's Enda Kenny. Um, I have been on American tours with Edda Kenny in, when I was in a previous job working in radio and you, you were better able to follow them around because you only needed your own kit. And I have watched Enda Kenny try to get a bit of peaceful shut-eye on a two-and-a-half, three-hour flight, internal flight in America, and be continually disrupted by the drinks cart like, ramming off his shoulder as he went up and down on the aisle seat while he was slumped trying to get a little bit that's of 40 terrible. minutes. Um, so, like, that's terrible, no, like, That's why you book a window seat for sleeping. I always go for a window well, seat like, for snooze. People do think that like it is all you know champagne and truffles when, when ministers are flying abroad. But no, we have had situations where the, the head of the country has been woken up that's by a drinks sorry. cart ramming off his shoulder. So it's not all as glamorous. You're never going to get a good snooze in the aisle seat though, just top tip. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's one thing that the government isn't going to be able to do while it's on recess with its feet up watching... Uh, Love Island or Virgin Media Player uh, is do anything more about the cost of living because if you can't legislate or you can't change tax rates or anything if the doll is, isn't sitting then you can't do anything about that and that's particularly interesting Zara given that you today were talking to the Children's Rights Alliance about some of the issues mm. that their clients are facing Yeah so really interesting today there was kind of two separate stories in relation to children today one was in relation to the Children's Rights Alliance uh, who've published a report around child poverty which I'll come to in a moment and the separate one then was um, with childcare providers uh, talking about the fact that the ones who provide that we debated this ECA or ECHE scheme we decided uh, on ECHE I've, I've heard it being pronounced as ECHE but I think it depends on whether you think so I you ECHE read at it in Italian I said ECHE at 5.30 it was kind of much for much but, um, but the providers who provide that scheme for example are saying that they can't really afford to do this anymore because cost of living their overheads have gone up and they're saying now that they're going to be staging a number of flash um, closures basically in September so parents won't be given the date basically they'll turn up to the the preschool and it'll be closed. They and won't be given the date. They won't be given the date and that's part of the, the whole premise of this is that they won't be given the date and it'll just be a case that you'll turn up and the preschool will be closed and for three days in a row. That's that's the premise wow. of it. And they feel like they obviously don't want to do this but they're saying they feel like they've no other choice and this is the only way they can send a strong signal to government in September which clearly as you know is a couple of weeks out from the budget. Mm. So there's one aspect of it. Obviously a huge factor in that is cost of living but separately then um, the Children's Rights Alliance publishing a, a report into child poverty today really harrowing detail in that. Um, you know, look, Tanya Ward, who's the chief executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, saying today that the government really needs to look at expanding the school meals programme out broader beyond just DESH schools. And she makes an interesting point about the fact that um, we're now seeing a situation where we have middle-income earners who are really struggling. And we've heard from many of them on the news, sure. you know, that, you know, they're two maybe working parents in the family and they still can't find a house to rent or they can't afford to rent. Maybe they can't get a mortgage or they can't get enough money to bid on a house to actually buy. So she's saying you're having a situation where you have middle-income earners who are now essentially working poor, who are struggling to fill lunchboxes going to school every day. And she's saying that while well, the government last week announced that they were going to expand the school meals programme out to all of the DESH schools in the country, Tanya Ward is saying today that really it just needs to be expanded out to all schools um, to ensure that children everywhere in Ireland are getting a hot meal in the middle of the day. Half of all children living in poverty are actually not in DESH schools. Um, half of all children living in poverty are actually in rural Ireland. So it's one of those things where you need to make sure it goes national to make sure that every child gets to benefit. And what we know is when it is part of the school day, you know, uh, children do better in school. Uh, they're more likely to return to school. They're less likely to miss school. And we know that it relieves the burden on parents, to, uh, to be honest, because parents can don't have to provide an extra meal in the school day. I know that is actually something that the government has currently commissioned a report about about whether it should be expanded and that's only due back in September which is mm. just right up to the budget so we'll see uh, where that comes um, we probably should mention all the psychodrama across the water given that we spent a lot of last week's episode talking about the psychodrama across the water once again it's changing by the moment well, really. and, and all of us gasping as Michael Gove was sacked and would Boris try to hold on and of course 12 hours later he had decided to let go because it was a futile exercise and, and it's very difficult nearly to keep up with the runners and riders because even Richard like, before you get to the runners and riders you were tweeting earlier on about how 
the new Chancellor of the Exchequer had a seven days that Craig David could only envy, given yeah. how busy he was. The, the Craig David of the Conservative Party is Nadim Zahawi. So, uh, Met this girl on Monday, took her for a drink on Tuesday. Yeah, so oh. like on, on Tuesday, appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer. Wednesday, he was out defending Boris Johnson. Thursday, he was out saying Boris Johnson should go and that he must step aside. He'd been plotting all the way through to become to replace Boris Johnson. So he entered the race for the Tory leader. And then today, he's out of the race for Tory leader. So in the course of seven days, he's got a lot in there. Yeah. The, the roller coaster nature of politics. Somebody said something about it being a long time in politics now. But down to six now in the Tory leadership race. And a new front runner has emerged. Yeah, this is Penny Mordaunt, PM for PM. Someone, someone who's going to get elected on the basis of how snappy her podium is, basically. She's going to get... I heard the best um, reason for anybody... why anybody should be the Prime Minister of a country earlier on today. Bob Stewart is a Tory MP, and he says he's backing Penny Mordaunt to become the new Prime Minister of Britain because of her bravery, right? So that's, that's a bravery. good reason. Okay. Good reason. Does she have a, a George's Cross? or well, What's she done then? No, what's, she, what's her bravery? He, he, he says she belly-flopped a dive on the reality show Splash uh, on ITV back in the day, which was described as a low point for television, the worst series to ever air on terrestrial television, <laughs> uh, and then came back and did another dive again. Seek out that dive, it was great. Good I, to watch back I, in the day. I can't remember if we also broadcast that series here on Virgin Media Television. Maybe we did, which means... Sounds, it, it sounds like we Which means we watched. might have that belly flop in our own archives. We'll work we on that We have the rights to that week. then, yes. yes yeah. <laughs> I can but, just so, hear that, our two producers being like, stop making promises. So, so that, that's her, her bravery, was that she belly flopped on TV once. And, and then did it again. Climbed that ladder. Okay. And dove again in front and, of the And this lady. is why she should be... Is that because, you know, say, for example, those photo calls of Boris Johnson in, uh, well, you know, jumping out of planes and things like that, that perhaps we could get some great photo calls of Penny Morden? Is that sort of the suggestion that she could be just as buoyant and exhausting as Boris Johnson? Well, I would hope she's buoyant if she's been doing... She's a big Brexiteer, anyway. <laughs> Fair. She's, she's a big Brexiteer. Don't expect anything to change. If she becomes... Well, you don't expect anything to change with well, regards yeah, to Ireland and well, the will, any, will anything change as regards any of them? Because the, there is little reason, even though many Irish leaders are talking up the prospect that maybe this will be the Conservatives coming to their senses, maybe, and going back to the old hands across the divide way of doing stuff, particularly mm. when it comes to Northern Ireland. There's very little evidence of that being possible at no. all. It doesn't, again, it doesn't even feature in the debate. What's interesting is actually in the debate over who should be the next Prime Minister of all of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is the fact that it's been so centred on culture war issues. And like we have a Taoiseach in this country and whatever you say about him, what he said about uh, the trans community a matter of weeks ago was that he doesn't want that sort of debate which we see in the UK to be imported to Ireland. And yet you see over in the United Kingdom where that seems to be the only issue separating a number of the candidates, or that seems to be the most focused on issue. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something to reflect on when we look at the politics of here versus the politics of there. And Penny Mordaunt, who's now obviously a front runner for this, she used, she previously championed herself as this person who is uh, an LGBT ally. And now she's trying to put the genie back in the box on the trans issue because it clearly Tory voters look at this issue in a different way, which is interesting to see. Mm. She follows me on Twitter, though. So Let's if she see. becomes the Prime Minister... Get her on the group we'll chat. We'll get her on and we'll grill get her, her about on this. the group chat. Sl slide into um, her DMs. I think you should on. get her on. We should get her on, like, next week before she becomes the PM because it might be easier to get her. Put yeah, that bit in. Well, I want the Prime Ministerial I want to get that bit in. Get that but, yeah, it is an It's an interesting one when you're looking at how politics is done there versus here. It, it is um, quite bizarre that a country that has all the social ills and the poverty and the cost of living stuff that it's struggling with as well, that the major issue in the Conservative leadership could be the definition of what is a woman uh, rather mm -hmm. than how you're going to feed the country or deal with all those social ills. Yeah, we should give a shout out to Michelle Donnellan, who is the Education Secretary in Britain for all of about a day and, oh, already, and has her portrait on the wall 
in the Department for Education. They made sure no that her name, her, her portrait is on the wall alongside all of the other Secretaries of State for Education that there's ever been, despite holding the job for about a quarter of a Scaramucci. I love that uh, for you, Michelle. Which is very impressive. Love that for you. Can't take that away from you, love. No, love. Well done. Moving from culture war to not hopefully actual war. Uh, Richard, nice. you've been doing a lot of work this week about the Defence Forces and some of the uh, the upskilling and uptooling and levelling up yeah. uh, that's this in their future. This was an interesting uh, piece you had out today. The footage was quite decent. Yeah, I went to McKee <laughs> Barracks at 0900 hours. Uh, I rendezvoused with our camera crew. Uh, and I went about finding You're out. You're going to leave us for the army this week. You're obsessed. Yeah. I, I, the, the army people have taken me in as one of their own now. So <laughs> they'll come in wearing a beret next week. That's Full the Bergen. reason for that. Yeah. But no, this is about the future of the Defence Force. And we actually talked about this a, a number of weeks ago when they were talking about what we could do about this initially. So the Defence Forces needs to change. It's outdated. It's outmoded. We have the lowest uh, spend on defence capabilities of anywhere in Europe. Uh, and um, it's been decided that everybody should be paid more in the Defence Forces in terms and conditions for people who work the Army, the Navy or the Air Corps are all pretty poor in comparison. That's a long time be. coming. And that's long, a long, long, long battle, yeah. So they're changing that. Uh, they're also going to get new kit in and uh, they're going to buy radar so that um, we can actually look at what's happening in our own skies. Now, when you, sorry, when you our, say new kit, what, what, what are they getting in? Helicopters, gear like that, more armoured vehicles, just better gear, upgrading barracks, all that stuff is well out of date. Mm. Most of our ships are unseaworthy at this point, so they're obviously going to have to be replaced. So it's an 8 billion euro spend over the next six years. Six um, years. It's a big spike in spending. So there's obviously been questions about whether or not it's appropriate in terms of, you know, at a time when we're talking about the cost of living mm. Um, mm. crisis. But what I think is actually most interesting about all of this is the cultural change which needs to happen in the Defence Forces mm. and how much they're fronting up to how much they accept that there's a big problem there which needs to be done. People will remember the Women of Honour mm. situation where women who served in the Defence Forces came forward with um, their own experiences and allegations of a sexual assault, of bullying and harassment. Um, it's been described as a patriarchal culture where women feel they won't have their grievances heard out. Also said to be a difficult place for minorities as well. And now the Defence Forces needs to boost its numbers. So actually the biggest thing they need to do is to hire 6,000 more people into the Defence Forces. 3,000 permanent, 3,000 reserves. The only way you're going to do that is by attracting more women to it. And they actually want to boost the number of women in the Defence Forces up to about 35% of total. So they need to make it a safer place for women. They have to drive out misogyny. Uh, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy, who's the head of the Defence Forces, is like, look, zero tolerance for this. He's gone, to, he's gone to every barracks in the country at this point. He's basically got this culture going where now everything has to be called out and just stamped out. Because, yeah, it's just an interesting situation where we find ourselves at the crossroads. And, you know, the big question about how we defend our island and, and mark out our own sovereignty is the big issue, mm. the, the bigger macro issue. But inside, there's a lot of change that needs to happen for that to actually even begin to make sense. To have a, a crucial cultural change though. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of the Women of Honour over the years and they would talk about, you know, even just the, the aspect of a kind of retrospectively looking back on times where women would have made complaints or maybe had spoken up about things wrongdoing that either they experienced or they witnessed and then find themselves in a situation where they then didn't progress on their career or they were kept or they were held back. And like, there's a lot of things like that that still have to be addressed retrospectively. But certainly I think groups like that will welcome the idea of a cultural change and a cultural shift. Yeah, something which is uh, very much uh, long overdue as well. And, and uh, but just one thing before we move on from that, um, people will, will sort of argue that investing so much in military hardware at a time when there's been a bit of a national debate around sovereignty or, or um, military neutrality and this whole question of, you know, should we be joining an association like NATO? How is the government trying to square that? How is it, how is it trying to, to marry investing in a lot of hardware 
including stuff that you could use to attack if necessary, and also not. Ah, well, nobody, we're, no, we're not invading Britain like Gav. You know, nobody's saying we're <laughs> armed the tanks. We're, Listen, we're, we don't know how the culture wars could become actual wars very quickly. We're shipping out to Hollyhead. Um, <laughs> No, but like, no, that, that, those debates around neutrality and, and allegiance are going to kick off because mm. Ireland wants to be part of more EU defence yeah. missions, which yeah. opponents of that say that's, you know, the precursor to an EU army, which is yeah. obviously something we should have to have a big debate on. Um, the best way the government has tried to frame it is basically, OK, this is better for our neutrality. If we're able to look out for ourselves, we, we won't need the RAF looking out for here's what's okay. happening in your airspace because that's what's happened so, now. So we are less compromised by, uh, we would be less compromised if we can monitor our own international waters and airspace rather than needing to leech off Britain's capacity to do Pretty it. much just getting the Brits to do it for us, yeah. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the argument that they have there. I don't think that's going to satisfy everyone. I think there are some very legitimate grievances and concerns about this and I do feel that oftentimes we've had this sort of, you know, we've seen so many column inches and, you know, when you hear debates in the all, people say it's time for an, a mature debate on neutrality. And most of the people who say that say, well, we should just abandon neutrality. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's a, mean, that's a yeah. meaningful or a mature debate. We should it's have a mature a, abandonment of neutrality. Yeah, exactly. Really mean, but yeah. I, I, do, I think that's one, that's one to watch now. That's one to watch as things roll on. So that's 8 billion uh, euro over six years. Yeah. Is, is I just a, find the, the timeline really interesting. I'm like, you know, given that we were talking about the Metrolink last week, I'm like, will this actually play out over the next <laughs> yeah. few years? I How mean, much will they actually be able to buy? Yeah. Uh, would 8 billion uh, euro buy you a, a good enough telescope for, for a new iPhone wallpaper? You're Richard Chambers is that. obsessed with Let me look down the camera and just, I want people to see the excitement in my eyes. The, the web space telescope. You haven't stopped going on about it. You've not, like, I'm going to be honest with you, you've not stopped like, going on about this. That's a TV. This is the it's coolest so and the most impressive thing in a world of absolute muck that has happened. <laughs> we've had to look, we've had to look billions of light years away to find some beauty in this universe. And Webb did that wow. and it brought home the bacon in style. So this is the most impressive and the most powerful telescope that's ever been created. It's currently a million miles away from us. It's pointing the other way mm -hmm. and it's scoping out stuff that doesn't exist anymore. It's showing up galaxies and stars, which we've you know, never seen before. It's basically unearthing the, the mysteries of how we all came to be. You, sh you should explain for people who don't understand the, the basis of that sentence you just said. How is it showing us stuff that doesn't exist anymore? And by people who don't understand, Gavin means me. <laughs> This is I didn't big, mean that, but okay. No, it's, it's fine. A, it's it is a, me. <laughs> it's a big telescope, right? And it, it's basically able to show how the universe was formed, okay? So basically, you know the way in space everything is me measured in light years as yeah. a distance. Like, that's how long it takes light to pass. So like, it takes eight minutes from light from the sun to reach us on Earth. That's, so that's not a, a light year will tell you it takes a year to do that. This is looking 13 billion light years away. So the light that this telescope is seeing was emitted from something which existed 13 billion years ago and therefore probably does not exist anymore because does all not exist stars anymore. have gone boom. So that's the, so you're currently looking at something which happened 13 billion years ago in the earliest days of our universe and time itself. And some of the most, everybody should check this out. They're going to be with iPhone wallpapers for years. Um, these <laughs> these unbelievable, that. just like it's the most incredible, most humbling experience. Just look at some of this stuff of just how we were all created. Like everything, we can debate everything in this world apart from like where, you know, life came from and how it all started. And this gives us the best scope about and helping scientists to understand all that. But it's also very pretty. So <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. quite pretty. And it's become memes already. It's got, I, already? I actually saw people sharing it on Instagram stories this morning in the context of being like, Girlos, forget about your problems, you're only a speck in the universe. <laughs> Which like... Profound yeah. and beautiful. It was quite yeah. profound yeah. and beautiful, yeah. I mean, like, there's the famous like pale blue dot speech, which tries to do that slightly more eloquently about it. Like it shows you the earth 
and it's a little tiny pixel in the corner of a thing and it's a speech by Carl Sagan, a famous astrophysicist, mm. about how, you know, everyone who has ever lived and anyone who has ever died is on that pale blue dot. Every empire that has ever existed, every politician who will rise and fall, every war that's ever taken place, every religion that anyone has ever worshipped has all existed on that pale blue dot. Mm. And the Huns are like, girl, don't worry about it. Love that. I love how they've given it a 21st century spin. Beautiful. Brilliant. That's no funny. less profound or accurate, I yeah. would say. Uh, hopefully as well, they, they could at some point use that telescope to figure out whether uh, points are actually legitimately scored in Croke Park as well, because that's been a whole hoo-ha. Listen, if Webb can, can find out if there's clouds on distant planets millions and millions of miles away, yeah. Hawkeye can get it right for the All-Ireland Final. They want final. to be getting it right for Sunday, because if, if Hawkeye is not in play for the All-Ireland Hurling Final on Sunday, there will be words. Um, before we go, we probably should, given that it, it apparently has now become a routine part of the show that we talk about our opinions on Love Island available to watch in the Virgin Media player um, and the departure in last night's episode at the time of recording of Jax O'Neill who apparently has already showed back up at his old rugby league club to go in and say hello and think about maybe going back to training um, but it does raise Zara the whole question of um, the mental health of participants in reality TV and some of the aftercare that there is not even aftercare in fact you know mm. mid-care the, the care that is available to them while they're on the programme as well as afterwards Yeah so we spoke about this today so it was obviously the situation with Love Island last night where Jax uh, was clearly very distressed by uh, Adam Collard making a comeback to Love Island and, and sort of coming in and making a play for, for his not girlfriend but the girl he was interested in Paige but I suppose like the broader issue was around I suppose we, we kind of said ourselves watching it it was quite distressing to see how upset he was and clearly you know he was going through something and it was sort of unfolding maybe on you know on national international yeah. television even um, so we had a look at Love Island's uh, duty of care protocols and interesting to see that uh, in a statement they say that ahead of this series contributors on the show will be offered video training and guidance covering inclusive language around disability sexuality race ethnicity behaviours and microaggressions now, I thought the microaggressions point was interesting so mm. they're given a lot of insight into kind of what to expect in the situation and they're sort of being um I suppose schooled or trained and how to manage it. Also crucially as well, um, they're offered comprehensive psychological support, training for all Islanders on the impacts of social media and handling of potential negativity, training for Islanders uh, in terms of financial management goes on, a proactive aftercare package which extends support to all of the Islanders following their participation on the show and we're told that they get around eight therapy sessions minimum when they okay. leave the show. But I suppose it was just, we kind of felt, I think, looking at it last night that he was, you know, clearly going through something in that moment. I'll, I'll be honest that I was conflicted in watching it because I had to, to watch it back because with the confidence vote and everything else I was very late catching all up with it and it, it was almost for a while like I thought there was a scene missing because the, mm. the transition between him getting aggressive at Adam showing up and beginning to get close to Paige more comfortable than he was uh, he was happy with and then suddenly the transition to him being a bit miserable and saying that he didn't feel himself and that he was thinking about leaving and then ultimately leaving it seemed like the transition between them wasn't very well articulated now to be fair I can imagine that maybe if there have been some other signs along the way that he was having a rough time, that you wouldn't automatically air them because if they weren't germane to any storytelling purpose, that there was no point in airing them. And that maybe then the show only has to address them on air when it's come to a tipping mm. point and he's going to leave. Um, I think we have to be careful as well. And look, we're mindful that there is someone who's having, you know, who's clearly having a difficult time, somebody who has ADHD, so they already would find it difficult being in that kind of intense environment. Mm. You, you... I have to show them some sympathy and, and wish them the best in their departure. But also, 
hold them accountable and not give them a free pass for some of the more toxic or aggressive behaviour. The behaviour was inside. the behaviour wasn't all right, Richard, was it? There, was, no. there were things that went on there that were probably weren't all right. No, there, there were. Then this is a problem. This is actually, and like, I have no problem saying this. I don't really care. And like, people probably think that we were advertising Love Island there all the amount of times we plugged it all the way over <laughs> to the show. But I have. This is about the time where I lose interest in Love Island every every year. But there is a moment like this that comes where you see stuff which is a little bit too aggressive or it's a little bit too close to the bone or you see someone's mental health start to fray a little bit and you're like, who is this for? What's, what's happening here? I don't know. I don't know if, I, if this is entertainment for me anymore. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, with Jax, it seemed like he'd crossed the line a few times. There was a lot of aggression towards other Islanders. It was a bit over the top sort of love bombing of Paige, I felt as well, mm. which is a problem. Um, just very erratic and I do feel like I felt like watching the, the episode where he, um, he left it did feel like we'd seen a bit just a, a guy just completely collapsing in on himself in the middle of it and, 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 and for all yeah. of our amusement and it was very unfortunate as well that it does leave Paige then in that very awkward situation because the natural assumption is if he says right I'm now going outside to get my head in order and I'll be waiting for you when all of this is finished that, it, that then, I think it put, that was very it puts a big yeah. burden then on the other partner in, in the relationship such as it is but she did not she reciprocate leave. at all in that moment at no point did she say great yeah thank, like I can't wait to see yeah. it like I mean I think it was very clear sort of from her behaviour that she yeah. definitely wasn't comfortable with some of what was said in, in that. Well, we hope he gets what, whatever um, support is made available to him and that it's it's adequate for whatever his needs are. And uh, we wait to see exactly whether Paige says about the look ahead suggests that Paige and Adam may have a future. We may so. have a future. Before Don't we go, yes. I want to say thank you to yes. uh, Guy Sinnott from MCD, hey. who is so lovely. And uh, basically, Helen, who is a group chat listener, got in touch to say that her nephew, Sean, had tickets to the Westlife concert last Saturday. And they had their tickets, but they couldn't get access to um, uh, the disability stand where they could go and have a better view and sort of, you know, obviously get access to the space they needed to be in. And so very kindly, we contacted Guy Sinnott on behalf of the podcast and he helped them out and they had a great oh, night on Saturday night. So thank you, Guy Sinnott. Oh, thank you to Helen well and Sean. And thank you for listening to the podcast we're delighted we'll be able to help you and thank you for listening to the podcast uh, as ever uh, because it's been a wild all week in news and we were glad to be your chaperones through it all um, we will be back of course next week as well uh, don't forget to leave a rating on your preferred platform of choice uh, and leave us a comment if that's something that you can do as well uh, really big help and help to get the word out about the show uh, so we will uh, wrap it up from here and we will thank you all very much for listening thank you Richard Chambers see you after <laughs> that's a Fate Street <laughs> reference which we will explain some other time uh, thank you Zara King thank you Gavin Ryan. and thank you very much for watching we will see you next week bye bye Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.